Hey there, it's Brian. This weekend we wanted to put out a couple episodes on the current assault going on against America's public school system. For that, Josh put together this wonderful interview, and in addition, we all watched a horrible right-wing propaganda documentary called Whose Children Are They? This interview is available on the public feed, and if you want to listen to us talk about this dreadful fascist movie, uh, stick around for a little clip at the end of this episode, and if you want to hear the whole thing, consider becoming a patron over at patreon.com slash worst of all. Trust me, you don't want to miss out on this one. We subject ourselves to an incredible amount of harm. Anyway, on to you, Josh. So hello, welcome to uh, an extra special interview here with the Worst of All Possible Worlds. Um, If you've been following the news lately, you have probably heard about the conflicts that are going on with schools, specifically things to do with the curriculum in schools, the idea of critical race theory and, you know, what books should people be allowed to read, as well as questions about the funding of schools. How should schools receive their funding? Should I be allowed to choose what school my kids uh, should go to? And to help clarify what is actually going on here, I decided to get a hold of a couple of subject matter experts in this field. So today I am joined by Wendy Lecker and Nicole Chulo from the Education Law Center. Uh, Hello, Wendy and Nicole. If you could just go ahead, introduce yourselves and let our listeners know sort of what your story is and what your organization does. I'm Nicole Chulo. I'm a policy associate at Education Law Center um, and Wendy Lecker. Um, Wendy, do you want to introduce yourself before we get into what the organizations do? Sure. Wendy Lecker, I'm senior attorney at Education Law Center. Um, so Education Law Center is a New Jersey-based nonprofit that or that advocates for equal education opportunity and education justice in New Jersey and in states across the country. So ELC's work focuses on um, mostly school funding and resource equity. And it's most known for um, its work on the Abbott v. Burke litigation which launched one of the nation's most ambitious and far-reaching efforts to improve public education for students of color. Um, And Wendy and I also work on the Public Funds Public Schools campaign, which is a national campaign to to fight private school vouchers and other diversions of public funds from public education. PFPS is a collaboration of Education Law Center, Southern Poverty Law Center, and the SPLC Action Fund. PFPS relies on numerous strategies, including litigation, research, policy, advocacy, and um, other advocacy efforts to keep public funds in public schools. So we'll get into talking about school funding and tuition vouchers and that sort of thing in a little bit, but I'd be interested to hear first a little bit. You had mentioned uh, Abbott v. Burke. Tell me a bit more about that case and uh, what its result was and how that's impacted the lay of the land nationally. Well, you know, Abbott v. Burke was um, was has been a long-running school funding cases uh, case in New Jersey based on the New Jersey um, constitution, every, you know, there's not a federal right to education, but every state constitution has 
um, an education clause or an education article which guarantees a free public education. In New Jersey, it's called a thorough and efficient education to all children, no matter where they live, no matter what their challenges are. Um, and Abbott v. Burke established and um, made real for children of New Jersey, particularly children in the, quote, Abbott districts, the um, districts that were uh, high poverty and uh, high concentration of children of color, the, made real that right by um, ruling that essentially the state has to meet children where they are. The state has to um, reform the funding system to ensure that all children get a, quote, thorough and efficient education. That um, was a fairly early, you know, it was many, 30 years ago at least, um, decision. And one of the unique things about Abbott was that the, the court not only recognized the right to a thorough and efficient education, but it recognized preschool as a constitutional part of an adequate education. Okay. Um, courts across the country have reached similar conclusions. What's very interesting in this kind of a litigation is that even though there are state court cases based on their own state constitution, many courts look to other courts in, the, in this field to see what other courts have done, how other courts have interpreted their constitutional provisions. And what's really interesting is that despite different demographics and different um, you know, economic situations, different geographic settings, courts have come up with a remarkably consistent um, set of, of ideals and set of resources that they think are essential to an adequate education in order to fulfill the constitutional obligation of the state, you know, small class size, mm -hmm. an adequate, well-qualified teachers and staff, right. extra services for students with extraordinary needs, a safe and secure environment, something that's very important in this age of pandemic, safe and secure facilities. Yeah, of course. All of these are, are essential to an adequate education. And what's also very interesting is that many, and this is really, really important for the culture wars that you're about to, you're going to talk about later, yeah. which is that many of the, almost all of the courts who have interpreted the constitutional provisions in their states have linked the importance of public education to democracy that the history of the education article was to ensure a citizenry that could participate as responsible and productive citizens. Sure. That makes sense. So ultimately then Abbott v. Burke in cases like it, their, their, their net effect, would it be fair to say that uh, ultimately what it does is it guarantees a certain baseline. Like everybody ought to be able to have this. All students ought to be able to have access to these particular resources, no matter what, that's a universal right. And uh, it is functionally part of our democracy, which is why we ought to offer it. Is that basically a fair, a fair summary? Absolutely. Cool. So then let's go ahead and uh, move from that, which I think is ultimately a pretty like, uncontroversial thing like i think by and large everybody would agree that we want to provide like that high standard of education for all students but the way one that we would think one, one would think, think one would think but the way that we get there uh is of course contentious because there's a lot of different people who have a lot of different opinions about how we should reach that goal and uh right now we're really seeing fundamentally a broad based, I would say, moral panic about what these educational standards ought to be. So I was next wondering, could could you guys talk a little bit about the national moral panic that is going on with like curriculum standards, how we teach American history, human sexuality, things like that, and um, how this framework relates to 
the moral panic and the, the culture war that is sort of being drummed up right now. You know, yeah. And I'm, I'm wondering whether it's maybe a manufactured moral panic, mm-hmm. um, um, because when you look at, you know, when there's an organization called Phi Delta Kappen, and they've for years and years and years have done surveys about public education and everybody loves their own public schools. Right. So um, one has to wonder, you know, and very often, you know, what happens very often is that, and I'm just going to give you a little background, for example, when it comes to sort of, st- this is a different example, but it, it illustrates the point. What, um, there, there was a, there's a professor in New Jersey named Domingo Morel who did a, uh, wrote a book called Takeover. And he um, showed that when communities of color, particularly black communities, get power in um, local school boards and in local communities, that's when the when states often on pretext decide to take over, yeah, um, take over the district and declare them quote failing. Um, and the reason that's important is because that's sort of you know we saw these this this um, rise in a quote moral panic over the curriculum in the wake of the George Floyd murder and right. people reaffirming that. Um, you know, that 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 there is something called institutional racism that, um, you know, that this is that that, you know, that perpetuates year after year. That's that's built in sort of to some of our institutions. And we really have to root it out, um, cu- coupled with the pandemic, which gave people who wanted to defund public schools a, a, an opportunity to exploit. And I think that was a confluence lucky for them, unlucky for public education and democracy, a confluence of events that gave rise to these um, efforts to interfere because, and let me just back up to say that, as I had said, public education is really about ensuring that we have citizens, you know, we're teaching, developing kids to be good citizens, good, tolerant citizens. But also it is not only where kids learn and practice democracy, it's also school boards are the basic institution of democracy. Sometimes the right. really the only institution of democracy that many people see and can participate. They can go to local school board meetings. They can vote in elections. And in fact, it's very often a path to power. I've definitely noticed that as well with a lot of these school board meetings. And this is this is a common tactic that is used by the reactionary right. In fact, they're very, very effective at this, at like drumming up at a, at a local level, people who are ultimately motivated to run for school board for reasons of a accumulating power and leveraging it to have, you know, higher career opportunities and B for uh, taking their own reactionary beliefs and essentially forcing them upon the rest of the school. There's there's numerous examples of this. And, you know, we're not going to talk too much about the documentary whose children are they in this conversation. But it's worth noting that in that movie, they actually use a couple examples uh, of situations where there was a public school that uh, had a number of curriculum standards that they had implemented, uh, a number of reactionaries were able to run for the school board and just completely overturn the entire thing. 
Right. And, and, but, you know, and the flip side, and, and I'll tell you, this is not new. I mean, it was done with the moral majority back right. in the 80s. Right. That was a stealth campaign to get to political power. But on the flip side, and in the, you know, when you look at the good, um, this is a, a, a path to political power for people from the community. True. And so African-Americans and, and Latinx people who grew, who are in that community often will leverage going into, you know, will start speaking out, going to school board meetings, running for school board, and then going to, to high office. Um, and also, you know, the school is often the school district is the largest employer and right. very often employs people from the community. So it's a really important institution of local institution of democracy. So when that is attacked and taken over and um, usur- the power is usurped, as you said, by people trying to say, hey, the state should determine what's in these school, these textbooks or 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 these people will come over funded often by outside interests and 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 disrupt local democracy. That does damage to not only to what kids learn and how they develop as citizens or not, but also to a- an actual institution, one of the last institutions of democracy. And let me just say in this era, one of the few institutions that provide services to our poorest and our neediest kids right. and families, because often they're the hub of the community. And you notice when a school, um, you know, when, 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 for example, Rahm Emanuel did a rash, rash of school closings in, in Chicago, all of a sudden those communities lost what was a hub. Sometimes that was the only place to have the lights on at night so it was safe to walk by. That's where communities gathered. That's where they had other kinds of meetings. So it's a really vital institution of democracy and the institution of community. So these attacks often are calculated to destroy the one public forum that's right. left that provides services to people. And, and it's not so much that, you know, you ask these people, what is critical race theory? They don't even know. They don't even understand what this is, but they're using it to attack public education. You can even notice just by watching or any of these school board meetings, right, is that the people who come in with the complaints about these inflamed culture war issues aren't speaking from any place of real research or expertise. They're they're regurgitating talking points. But the thing that makes it so effective is that if you have these talking points and they're ingrained into your brain, it actually doesn't really matter like what the concrete response is because you know what what your conclusion is going to come to. Your conclusion is always going to come to, you know, they are uh, trying to take over our schools. They are trying to hurt my child, you know. Um, and it's it's really a pretty startling way that like rhetoric can be used to weaponize people's opinions when I, I feel in a normal functioning setting, even people who do have disagreements about things like, I don't know, like, should, how how much sexually explicit content ought there to be in a given you know school curriculum or something like that? People could often, I think, reasonably disagree about these things, but instead you have the side that is weaponized by these moneyed forces coming in in bad faith and just steamrolling the people who are actually trying to make things better. Right, right, and 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 perpetuating this idea that public education isn't a public good, right, for the society, but rather it's what I get to determine. Right. Um, often, often, and we see this with trans kids and LGBTQ kids, often to the detriment of other people, like what happened to their rights. So this isn't Absolutely. about every individual advancement and everybody's individual rights. It, it is really, as the courts have said in school funding cases, an institution that's really 
designed not for the individual good, but for the public good. Yeah. I mean, also for the individual good in that you're developing citizens. Of course. But you're developing citizens for our society. But the idea that the individual good and the collective good are inherently linked is something that's completely absent from this messaging, right? And I think that this leads very naturally then into talking about sort of the core of what our conversation today is going to be about, which is this idea of so-called school choice policies. So could you give us sort of a background on what the idea of school choice even means, uh, how these policies were developed, and sort of the lay of the land right now with regard to these policies. In terms of the rhetoric um, and the so-called school choice, we're going to put that one in quotes. Um, it typically encompasses both charter schools and private school voucher programs. And the reason we're going to put school choice in quotes is because it hides the true nature and effect of school privatization efforts, which is to take public funds away from public schools, which welcome everyone. They serve the vast majority of students and they're already severely underfunded. So public funds, public schools, um, our work focuses on vouchers. So that's kind of where we're going to be focusing this discussion with you today. Sure. Um, so, you know, pro-voucher advocates would claim that access to private schools is a civil rights issue, but vouchers have always undermined the struggle for civil rights of our nation's students. They were initially used as a tool to evade school desegregation in the South. And now students who apply to or enroll in voucher schools are stripped of their rights and the protections that they would get if they were enrolled in a public school. If we could take one step even further back for people who aren't familiar with the idea of like tuition voucher programs, what mechanically actually is a voucher? What does it do? How does it work? Voucher programs um, redirect public money to private education um, uses. And there are three main types that states might have um, a conventional voucher, which pays for all or part of a student's private school tuition through direct payments, a tax credit voucher, which allows individuals or corporations to make contributions that they would otherwise owe in taxes to voucher granting organizations. And then these organizations fund the vouchers to pay for K through 12 private education, school tuition um, and other related expenses. Uh, I'm sorry, or just private school tuition and then an education savings account or an ESA voucher. So those are public funds that are deposited into a personal account that students can then use to pay for private school tuition or other educational expenses such as transportation, homeschooling and books. That sounds insanely convoluted for one thing. I just wanted to point that up. Like it, it, this is this to me is a classic example of like this sort of neoliberal privatization project that rather than just being like, oh, yeah, we should fund our schools. Instead, it goes through like a series of bizarre semi privatized accounts where like you can use it or lose it. and You have to play prices right with like how much money you can disperse from the account or whatever. It is definitely a way to get around funding public schools, which yeah money in the first place right and getting around trying to get around which we think um still illegally the the idea that public funds really have to be spent only on public education well and, and that's another question that i was going to ask this is like how is this not a first amendment issue like if, if if my tax dollars are going to fund kids going to religious schools that's a problem for me as a taxpayer i feel has this like what is has there been litigation about this has this gotten up to the supreme court level yes it has and it's still up there there's a case called espinoza out of montana where the court the supreme court which we know now is dominated by a conservative majority right. said that states don't have to fund voucher programs but if they do, they can't discriminate and not fund religious uh, schools as well. And now there's a uh, case that is about to be decided that 
might take this one step further. Maine, it's called Carson v. Macon. Maine is a state where in some areas they don't have, some districts don't have public schools. So in order to fulfill the constitutional obligation to give a public education, Maine has traditionally had a statute that allows the, the district to pay for kids to go to private schools. But because it's fulfilling the public education requirement under the constitution, they say, well, you can't send it to religious schools. And that is now going to be decided by the Supreme Court. And if the Supreme Court says, even though you're not, it's not a voucher program because it's really right. fulfilling the public education thing, you're going to have to um, fund the religious schools. Then and we're going to be eroding that, that the, what with the establishment clause, we're going to be eroding that. And it'll be uh, an interesting um, and scary prospect, yeah. but we're waiting to hear what that, what has to say there. But besides the first amendment, it could, it often violates the um, education clauses of constitutions because- Of state constitutions, you mean? Right. Because sometimes some voucher programs take directly from the public education funds to fund private schools. Sure. Um, which are not, which are only supposed to be for public education, but uh, and often it's at, to the detriment of give, providing an, the adequate education to um, kid, in public schools to public kids. So it's and it's also treating certain kids differently than other kids um, because they are uh, first of all they're treating you know they, they might be giving more money to private school kids. The public school kids, but also the as Nicole has pointed out, these schools do not have these private schools don't have the same protections as public schools. Right. So anyway, well, I'm not going to go into too much into detail. I'll kick it back to the no, but that makes sense, right? It's all about like getting around the regular regulatory burdens that would otherwise be placed upon schools. You want as re- as little regulation for your own educational institution as possible because rolling back regulations is basically an article of faith for the people who are pushing this sort of legislation, right? Right. And they can pay less taxes. You know, back to this idea of school choice in yeah. quotations. Um, you know, the interesting thing is that schools themselves, not parents, are given the choice to decide who they admit or reject. They can retain or expel students based on sexual orientation, disability, language proficiency, religion, or other personal characteristics. And people who are supporting the school choice see education as a commodity rather than a public good, right. which is as we've been saying, is a major concern because public education and public schools are integral parts of American life and the cornerstone of American democracy. For the sake of like, you know, presenting what the counter argument inevitably is for this, why is this all bad as long as it gets results, right? Does does it not get good education outcomes and positive education results? Surely this this program actually is working out well for students, right? Like um, in the Uh, sort of propaganda that we tend to see for school choice initiatives, the focus always ends up being on the students. And the idea is that, you know, if I am a student who is being underserved by my district, I can then choose as a student or my parents can choose for me a school that is better suited to my needs. And this results in better educational outcomes for everybody. Right? Not right. Oh, huh. Tell me more. All right. Um, So research actually shows that private school voucher programs are an ineffective use of public funds. And studies across the country have found that students who participate in voucher programs fare worse academically than students who are educated in public schools. Studies on the D.C., Indiana and Louisiana voucher program all found that students who use a voucher did worse academically. Um, And, you know, voucher programs fail to protect students with disabilities. 
Um, in fact, families who accept private school vouchers lose many of their rights under the Individuals with Disabilities Act and federal non-discrimination laws. Voucher schools are usually not required to provide the same services and accommodations to students with disabilities as public schools are, and parents are often not made aware of this. Um, and, you know, they also open the door to discrimination because students in voucher programs are not guaranteed the same civil rights protections as public school students. And, you know, what we were kind of touching on before is that voucher programs are also rooted in a segregationist history and they're with the origins of funding as segregation academies to avoid school integration. Right. And still today, white students are overrepresented in private schools and students of color and students from low income families are underrepresented. And this is interesting, though, not surprising, because many voucher programs claim that they're being established for low income students but they often do not cover the entire cost of tuition and other expenses that are free in public schools, um, such as meals and books. And they're mostly used by students with more resources who are already more likely to attend a private school. Um, and, you know, voucher programs, you know, they lack the same accountability and transparency that is required of public schools. And this leads to corruption and waste. So, you know, not only are the students in the voucher program, you know, are the voucher programs discriminating against students, failing to protect their civil rights, um, they're also taking away the money from the public schools, which educate the vast majority of students, and they're already underfunded. Fair and equitable school funding is the basic building block of a well-resourced and academically successful school system for all students, and vouchers are draining money from public schools. And you can find these studies um, on all of these topics on the research page of our Public Funds Public Schools website. You can link to them and, you know, you'll just find the harms of private school voucher programs for students both in public schools and the students in private schools. And I just want to say that we are sympathetic to, to parents who feel like their kids are not being served in the public yeah. school that, uh, you know, if, if, if for, for whatever reason, whether the public school is underfunded or whatever, but you can't you can't, first of all, serve one kid on the backs of other kids, you know, with public money. You can't you can't to the to the detriment of someone else. And we can't use public money to discriminate and to, as Nicole pointed out, to fund a system that does worse. Right. I mean, and really, that's 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 the core of all this, too. You know, setting aside, obviously, the issues with well, the, 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 the multiplicity of issues that we've talked about. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. So. If it doesn't work and we know it doesn't work, who is actually funding these initiatives and why are they doing it? There are certain organizations that go around and sue um, uh, the Institute for Justice, the Liberty Justice Center. Um, and there are other organizations like the American Federation for Children, which I believe has some DeVos connections. I think that's Betsy DeVos's own personal organization, actually. Exactly. Right. So that the, that that funds some of this. And, and there's an organization called ALEC, the American Legislative right. Exchange Council, that goes around and promotes different kinds of model bills um, to promote vouchers. And they, you know, a lot of the, uh, you know, there's a lot of different funders. A lot of the funders are the Cokes and the Bradley Foundation, people who have funded privatization efforts, um, public schools and a lot of anti-democracy things for years. 
Um, we're going to actually be having a webinar coming up, and I would urge people to keep on the PFPF website to see, um, by a professor from UMass named Morris Cunningham, who wrote um, The Dark Money Behind Privatiz School Privatization. It's a new book, and he's really going to detail, you know, a not only what big organizations, but a lot sometimes small local organizations and how to ferret out local organizations in your own community that might be funding these these um, th these efforts. And it's really important to take a look at who's funding these efforts and who's right. really behind these efforts. And so, you know, that's one thing that people can do. Well, let's uh, focus in on one particular person who we actually just mentioned who has been instrumental to a lot of these efforts, former United States Secretary of Education, Betsy DeVos. Now, I can certainly give plenty of background on her just for the sake of our listeners that, you know, you know, the context here, full transparency. Uh, I grew up in Grand Rapids, which is the same city that Betsy DeVos grew up in. I went to Grand Rapids Christian schools, which are the schools that she funded. I graduated from Calvin College, which is also the college that she graduated from. So um, I have quite a bit of uh, exposure to sort of uh, her and her world since being secretary of well, be, well before being secretary of education, Betsy DeVos had been involved in school privatization efforts for some time and continues to be as well. Education policy is sort of her big thing. I was wondering if the two of you could talk a little bit about that, about her specifically and what her impact has been with regard to these sort of school choice initiatives. Well, as you said, I mean, she really funded in Michigan, tried to tried to push vouchers, which are very unpopular and never funded. And I think then she used charters as the gateway drug. Right. The, you know, and which is now Michigan's sort of a wild west of school choice. With Oh, yeah. Really Detroit is schools. nuts. And yeah, it was the year 2000 that there was a proposal ballot initiative to amend the state constitution. And that that went down in flames. It was 70, 30, a 70 percent of voters said, no, we don't want vouchers. Absolutely wild right. stuff. And and her goal really is to have a Christian nation. She has said yes. that pretty much openly, yes. which is, of course, antithetical to what public education is about. So it was certainly alarming when she was named education secretary. I mean, she pumped billions. She's very wealthy from the Amway money. Right. She pumped billions and billions of dollars you know, into, into initiatives to promote school choice and private school choice in uh, Michigan and to fight any kind of accountability for the yep. existing charter school um, uh, system. So, you know, and, and she's continuing to do that. But, um, you know, when she was announced as education secretary, that was she was continuing that crusade. And one of the things she did was when the pandemic hit and relief funds, the CARES Act was passed, giving relief funds to, to public schools who desperately needed them for PPE right. to make sure that kids were safe and going to school and getting school remotely when they couldn't get in, in person. She um, tried to inflate. There's certain. There's a rule called equitable services. There's a, there's a um, program where public schools share money with private schools for low income kids in, in in private schools in their catchment areas that get to get certain services, the necessary services. And she tried to artificially inflate that number to divert more money, billions of money dollars to private schools. PFPS together with Munger, Tolls and Olson sued um, on behalf of districts and parents across the country. And 
we got a actually Trump appointed judge in D.C. to invalidate that rule. Wow. Um, that she that she tried to promulgate and say that, yes, it was indeed illegal. That's a pretty major uh, success, considering how heavily the deck has been stacked with with, you know, Trump appointed federal judges. Yes. Well, this was one who actually paid attention to the law and was quite <laughs> um <laughs> Quite effective, and I could tell you know what we could uh, you know Nicole could expand on what other things she did as as Secretary of Education. I can shut my mouth for a little bit. Yeah, uh, first I just say you know you can read more about this NAACP versus DeVos case um, and other lawsuits to fight private school voucher programs and. Um, the PSPS has been involved in and other voucher cases in general um, on our website too, and you can see the documents that have been submitted in those cases. Uh, so also during her time as education secretary, uh, Betsy DeVos sought to expand the D.C. voucher program and establish a nationwide federally funded voucher program. Wait, for real? She wanted federal vouchers? That's so funny because the rhetoric is always get the federal government out of my schools. <laughs> right. Except for when I can get money. Right. And, you know, I know you want to talk about what's going on in Michigan yeah. now, and she is back there. So. Yeah, baby. Great state of Michigan. What's she up to now? You know, voucher programs are widely unpopular with the public, and many proposed bills fail in state legislatures every year. And sometimes when that happens, pro-voucher policymakers and advocacy groups, they scramble for ways that they can push voucher programs into law. And one example is what's currently going on in Michigan. So for some context for your listeners, in 2021, Two bills to establish a tax credit voucher program were introduced and passed by the Republican-led legislature. Um, And these bills would provide tax credits for donations made to voucher-granting organizations that could then be used to pay for private education expenses. Um, The bills were vetoed by Governor Whitmer in November 2021. And then in February 2022, parents, along with Betsy DeVos, launched the Let Michigan Kids Learn ballot initiative. So if passed, it would create a voucher program that would divert hundreds of millions of dollars away from public goods, such as public schools, um, and give a tax break to the wealthy. So the Michigan Constitution has an indirect initiative provision, which would allow the legislature to pass the voucher bill without the governor's signature or widespread public approval. It only needs about 340,000 signatures before it can be passed into law by the legislature. And it would divert, I think, about $50 million in a year to private education. So pro-public education advocates are opposing this, and they formed the For Michigan Kids for Our Schools Coalition. So groups in that coalition include 482 Forward, American Federation of uh, Teachers Michigan, K-12 Alliance of Michigan, the Michigan Association of School Boards, Michigan um, Association of Superintendents and Administrators, the Michigan Education Association, and others. So, you know, it's a hot place right now. Well, and it sounds like the uh, the lines that are being drawn here are oftentimes the same ones that we find in these fights, where like on the one hand, you have these private forces, you have actual billionaires uh, up against longtime teachers, administrators, uh, union members, things like that. And it's it really sounds like this is like an an actual existential fight, because if this gets enough signatures, if this petition gets sufficient signatures, the legislature can do a total end run around the governor and and, and pass it into law. Yes, exactly. Yeah, it's a weird quirk of, of Michigan law that they could do this. So, uh. What's next? I mean, what, what, how are 
the people who are actually trying to back public schools seeking to fight this? Uh, is there anything that our listeners can do to get involved if they so desire? Yeah. Um, so I guess I would say, you know, we are not on the grounds um, organizing, but these groups are. So, you know, get in contact with them. We'll actually be interviewing Molly Sweeney, who is director of organizing at 482 Forward um, a bit later in the year to speak more about this issue with her. Um, and it's part of the Partnership for Equity and Education Rights, or PEER Network, which um, ELC helps to convene uh, that's fighting for education equity and investment in public education. So, you know, we're following this. We want to speak to her about what advocates are doing and how they can get involved. And then, you know, we can definitely share that with you and your listeners um, because it's Michigan specific. So more broadly, you know, your listeners can help keep control and funding of public schools in public hands by pushing back on the school choice rhetoric and parental choice rhetoric, and instead expose voucher programs for what they really are. We have some talking points on the PFPS website. We have fact sheets available to help counteract some of rhetoric here about how voucher programs improve student outcomes and why they are good uses of public funds. And, you know, we're continuing to grow that program, uh, grow that series so that advocates on the ground have what they need to go back and combat people who um, feel otherwise. Um, we would also say, to, you know, along those lines, stay engaged and informed. Um, educate yourself about the harms of voucher programs. And a lot of people may not understand that their taxpayer dollars are being used to fund private education that are associated with discrimination and other harms. Um, if a voucher program is introduced in your state, call your legislature, your legislator, and tell them to know vote to vote no against the proposal. They need to know the priorities of their constituents. And you know, we've spoken to some advocates in other states, and legislators are always up for re-election. So if they know that you will not support them, if they don't support your public, their public schools, your public schools, you know, they'll vote against them in general. Um, and Wendy, anything you want to add? Yeah, I mean, and I think, you know, there are organizations across the country, um, local organizations that fight this. In Arizona, there's Save Our Schools Arizona. There is an organization in Texas and, and Tennessee and elsewhere called Pastors for Children, where there are people of faith who are who are supportive of public schools and oppose privatization, you know, um, so that, you know, you can connect with organizations in your own state. We, you know, we often support them and, and partner with them. Um, you should definitely go on our website. We have a series of webinars. We even have one with a man named Charles Seiler, um, who used to be on the other side and jumped ship and kind of gave, gave some really interesting insights into how the propaganda machine of the, of the pro-privatization movement works. And we have many other topics that we have touched on, you know, have touched on in the past dealing with public education and vouchers. You can attend your school board meetings and, and find out what's going on in your own district. And most importantly, vote. Vote locally and vote nationally. Um, you know, it, it, it is an incredible, we saw what happened in Georgia. What an incredible, when, when grassroots folks mobilize and organize and vote, you can vote, you know, you really, that's, that's, that's how you can really implement some of the um, important democracy saving uh, policies um, and institutions like, like public education. Um, and as Nicole said, we have a lot of, um, one, of the, one of the tools we have on our website, I'm not sure if you said this, Nicole, is a legislative tracker where you can go and track pro-voucher and pro-privatization um, voucher legislation in all 50 states. Um, so that's on our website. 
um, so you can educate yourself about what's going on in your state or some other state that you might want to um, take action in or learn about. Great. Did I miss anything? Um, no, no. I just add about this um, tracker, you know, you can view bills from 2019 through the current legislative session. And so, you know, that helps monitor trends in voucher legislation. And we've seen an increase in the number of bills being introduced in state legislatures. We've seen changes in the types of bills being introduced, the creative ways that legislatures are trying to introduce these bills that, you know, people might not know about exploiting the pandemic, burying them in budget bills that have to get passed. Um, so all that information is available to you and you can track its progress throughout the legislative process and you know, see when there are hearings and know when to call your legislature. Um, and then you know, certain other organizations like the Network for Public Education, um, they work on this on a national level. They do action alerts. You can sign up for those to see what's going on in your state. And I think that's you know, a really great way to fight back. And Great. you can sign up for our mail, mailing list at www.pfps.org. It's PFPS, Public Funds, Public Schools, pfps.org. You can follow us on Facebook Facebook and Twitter, if Twitter still exists. And, um, <laughs> we'll and, see. Uh, <laughs> we'll see where that's and, going. You know, any questions, you know, somebody might have, they can put to, you know, us too, but definitely take a look at our website and MPE because those are, you know, great places to get started. We have, as Nicole said, we have the research on our page on, on our page. We have information about the kinds of litigation we engage in, and we also have legislative information. Awesome. Well, those all sound like fantastic resources. Uh, we'll make sure to link those in the notes for this particular interview. Um, and uh, Wendy and Nicole, thank you so much for your time today. Um, we really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to let our listeners know a bit more about what is going on. Um, and with that said, I'm the worst of all possible Joshes. Thanks for listening. Bye. So many possible worlds. All right, folks, if you want to hear about the insane right wing propaganda film, Whose Children Are They? I've got a little clip for you right here, and if this wets your whistle, go check out the rest over on Patreon. The National Teachers Union is not great. No. It's it's actually not good, I'll argue. And and it, it's very much aligned with like the center of the Democratic Party. It's right. it's it, like um what's the name? The, the the boogeyman lady that they keep dropping her name over and over and over and Randy over, over again. Randy Weingarten, thank yeah. you. She was a Hillary supporter, right. and like uh we got from the 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 email scandal. Um, that she was like going after people who had endorsed Bernie Sanders right. and specifically other unions that had well, endorsed and, Bernie and Sanders. That's not good. There's very and, little and, yeah. actual radical edge left to any of the national yeah. unions. And the reason is that due to the laws that have been passed, including national right to work, uh, there has just been less and less and less union yeah. membership. And so they they're, feel like they have to, to just decay it. cling on to the what they have left and they don't and feel like they can fight made, anymore. And that's what made for a really spectacular moment. I mean, a really like mind blowing moment in 2018 when you had all these teachers in West Virginia go right. on strike and then teachers in Oklahoma went on strike. When they did that, it was illegal. Right. There was a wildcat strike. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. it was completely denounced by the National Teachers Union and by Randy Weingarten. And it worked. Oh, it right. fucking worked like gangbusters. It got results. And that's where the organization... Behind this movie, fucking uh, Four Kids and Country started because of the success of those strikes. Mm. It started in that year. 
the people that make Pokemon and Yu-Gi-Oh are actually a uh, offshoot of Four Kids in Country, <laughs> just called Four Kids. <laughs> There's actually two parts. The anti-teachers union part is the Four Country. Because um, this shit, you know, it's just Missy, trauma. I have a feeling Brock is an activist. <laughs> <laughs>